Fun moments, fun moments. Okay, well, we are continuing our study in Kings, uh, Kings and Prophets, and we've been focusing on Kings predominantly uh, in, our, in our series, but now we're turning the lens a little bit. We're going to focus in on a prophet of the Lord. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning, 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at one of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament, and his name is Elijah. Not to be confused with Elisha, but Elijah. We're going to look at his life and what God did through him. And here's what we're going to see, um, and I'm going to read it here in a moment. Uh, We're going to see tremendous highs and tremendous lows and how God moves in a person's life, whether they're in a high or in a low, and sometimes God leads them through all of it. And let's just be honest, there's times in life where God gives us tremendous highs, and there are times in life when we have tremendous lows. So how is it that we still walk with Lord, even in the midst of the, uh, the waves of life? Let's look at it together. First uh, Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of those by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked of hot stone, on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And an angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank and went in the strength that he had uh, for that food for 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, of the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I alone, am left. And they seek my life, to take it away. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the life of the prophets. Men who walked with you uh, in, in very challenging circumstances, in very challenging times. And Lord, thank you for the things that we can learn from their life, their ups and their downs. So Lord, I pray that as we look at the life of Elijah, you would teach us how to climb out of the cave how to climb out of those dark moments in life when we uh, despair even of life. And Lord, I know there are some folks here um, this morning that are walking uh, out of a cave or walking into a cave of their own, that, that, that dark night um, of the soul. And I pray that as we look at how you uh, speak tenderly and lure a man out of a dark place, we might also be lured out of a dark place by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, it's summertime. It's almost ending. I can't even believe it. Like, we're all the way almost to August or August at this moment. It's absolutely crazy. But one of the things I love in summer, and I haven't done it yet this summer, and so this story will give you an opportunity to help me do this, Uh, but I love wakeboarding, uh, and I love wakeboarding in particular on on lakes uh, as opposed to oceans. Wakeboarding on oceans is dangerous and, and you, you die. But I love wakeboarding on lakes. And, and the reason I, I love that is because if you get the right moment on the right lake, you see uh, the smooth surface. And if you've never done wakeboarding before, uh, you are in for a treat when you are learning the process. So what you do, just to kind of describe it for you, uh, you you're like, what am I going to get Sunday morning? This is it. This is what you're going to get right here. Uh, what you do is you start in the water with your feet up, strapped into the board. And the, you have, you're holding onto the rope, and the boat starts pulling you up. And you, what you're supposed to do is, is let the boat pull you up. Just let the boat kind of 
pull you to the surface. But as you're learning, you don't know that part of it. You don't really know how to respond to the pull of the rope. And so, and so you start fighting it and pulling it across the water, eating. Uh, for the first several times I was learning to wakeboard, it would just pull you over, and then you're just skimming across the water, eating uh, a lot of water. And so that's how you start the process. And, 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 and you know, <laughs> you try to muscle it out, but then you just, like, go off, and then, the, then all your friends that are on the boat laugh at you, and they circle back around, get you up again, and you go again and again and again. I remember at one point, I, I, I'm getting so frustrated, and my friend's like, you can do it. And I'm like, no, I can't. He's like, just give it one more shot. And I'm like, fine. I mean, and, and this is just for their entertainment at this point, right? And so I'm there in the water, just kind of poised, getting ready to be, get pulled up, and the boat, the boat surges, it pulls me up, and all of a sudden, I'm up on top of the water. And let me tell you what, there's, there's nothing more exhilarating than skimming across the surface of the water with this boat and its power pulling you across. I mean, especially when, when, when the waves aren't, aren't, aren't too big, but you're just going across this like a sea of glass. And there's a wake that's being formed and you're sitting there right in the crest of that wake behind that boat being pulled across. And I remember just standing up going like, I'm amazing. This is it, right? And, and as, you're, as you're going across the water, you just see the smooth, like it is the closest to flying that I've ever experienced, you know, going solo. And it's so smooth and so fun. It is exciting and exhilarating until it becomes exhausting. Because there's a moment when your arms get tired. Because the boat's pulling, you're kind of pulling against it, you're holding your body there, and, and what ends up happening is you kind of get shifty a little bit, you, you lose your, your balance, maybe hit a, hit a wave, and then suddenly the wakeboard turns, or mine did, you catch a lip, and then you catch your face on the front of that water. And the reason I tell you that is because that is the Christian life. That's the Christian life. As you start walking with Jesus, there's moments when, you, when it's a little bit rocky at the start. You're, you're like, how does this thing work? How does this church thing work? What's the right language? How do we do this? Where is this pulling me? And, and it's that start. It's a little bit rocky. And then suddenly you hit your stride. I mean, it makes sense. Like things begin to make sense. You're like, I, I understand how God's working in my life. I, I know how to, how to interact with God. And, and, it, and it's exciting and it's exhilarating. And you feel the wind of God behind your back or you feel the pull of God pulling you forward. And it seems like things are going in a good direction. Sin, resisting sin is easy. Relationship with your spouse is great. I mean, they're like, they're like let's pray together. And you're like, oh, praise God. Yes, let's pray together. And things are simple, but then over time, you hit lows. You get a little bit tired. You get a little bit short. Your expectations get dashed on the rocks of reality. You turn and you face plant. And the reason I say there is, I start there is because that's where Elisha is in this moment. See, there's a tremendous highs in the Christian life, but there are also tremendous lows. And every person used greatly by God in Scripture has experienced the same roller coaster of life. It's happened in the life of Moses. Moses at one time became so discouraged that he asked God to take his life. Jonah, when he goes to Nineveh, to preach the gospel to them. All of a sudden, they respond in a positive way. They're like, okay, we believe in this. And Jonah is so frustrated, he goes and sits by himself waiting for God to destroy them because he's so mad at these people. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, it said that he despaired even of life. In Isaiah 53, it says of um, predicting the coming of Jesus, it says of Jesus that he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You see, that's the truth of the Christian life. There's a wide array of emotions, right? And Jesus says, I came to give you life and give it to the full. And what we, what we assume that means is the fullness of joy without pain. But that's not the fullness of life he came to give. He actually came to give us the full experience of life. Tremendous highs. And sadly, there are also tremendous lows, but God's not distant in our highs or our lows. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how God interacts in Elijah's life. 
He's coming off of the most significant highs of his life, and he drifts into one of the deepest, darkest caves of his life. How is it that God moves a person out of the caves of life? That's what we want to look at this morning. And to get there, I want to give us, first of all, a context. And then we're going to look at his descent into some spiritual discouragement. I'm calling it discouragement. It may be depression, but it's probably not clinical. But there's deep discouragement. And then we're going to look at the path forward towards spiritual renewal. So context is 1 Kings, I keep on saying Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 16. And in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19, we get a kind of a snapshot into the life of Elijah. The, the, the situation occurs in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, and it says this. Now, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. We looked at last week that the kingdom was divided. There was a kingdom in the north that was called Israel, and there was a kingdom in the south called Judah. There was only two tribes in the lower kingdom at this point in time. There was Benjamin um, and, and Judah. So that was the region that uh, was in the lower area. That's what we looked at last week. Um, this week, we're looking at what's going on in the northern kingdom. Elijah was a prophet predominantly to the northern kingdom, to Ahab, who's, who's reigning uh, over this time. Continue verse 30. Now, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Here's what we see about Ahab. Ahab is the king that's in charge over the northern kingdom. He married Jezebel. And this couple was unique. Uh, Ahab was, was in many ways codependent on his wife. His wife was the stronger one of the party. In fact, we're going to see her, that she's pretty much the one calling the shots in their relationship. And they were worshiping uh, Baal. They were worshiping these false gods that were a plague to their nation um, for, 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 for generations. And so that is the context. And, and Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, worse than, than many of them, the kings before him. He's leading the nation in a poor direction. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah steps onto the scene. In 1 Kings chapter 17, it's, it's almost like Elijah jumps down like a bolt of lightning. And he says, look, it's not going to rain for the next three years later. And he heads to the brook of Cherith. I mean, that's, that's like how Elijah jumps onto the scene. It's not going to rain, and then I'm going to head to the brook of Cherith. And he stays at the brook of Cherith until literally the brook runs dry. Until God leads him to the next place. And so for three years, the nation has been uh, in a drought. And the drought was a symbol of God's judgment on this nation. Will you return to me, or will we continue worshiping false gods? And so that's the situation that we're in when he comes to 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah comes back after three years of drought. And he comes to the, the point where he confronts Ahab, and 450 prophets of Baal. And that is the biggest standoff moment that Elijah will face. There's 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah comes in in this moment and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. You believe Baal is the god of thunder and rain. Great. Let's, let's put him to the test. And so let's build two altars, and let's have two sacrifices, and let's see the God that answers by fire. And so he then begins to start praying, and the, the, the prophets of Baal begin praying. And they're begging Baal, come down, light our sacrifice on fire. And Elijah in this moment is mocking them. It's so fun. I love reading the scripture, and you've got to read it for what it's saying. He's mocking them, and he starts saying this type of stuff in 1 Kings 18. He's like, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe if y'all yell louder, he'll hear you. And it's so fun. I mean, just you read the realism. And, just, and, and Elijah's sitting over there like, well, maybe he's taking a dump. You're like, I don't know. Like, maybe he's just kind of indisposed at the moment. Will you just get him going? And so he starts like, like razzing him during this time. And, and nothing's happening. They scream and they cry and nothing's happening. And then Elijah says, okay, let's, let's do this right. Take all of the water, and I want you to pour it over the altar. So that 
during a drought, you don't waste water, but that's what they're doing. They pull in all the water and they put it over the sacrifice, soaking it wet so it can't light on fire. And then he prays and God sends fire and the whole thing explodes in a flame and Elijah goes, that's what I'm talking about, peace, right? And at that moment, you're going, this is perfect. Like this is the epic high. I don't know what your epic spiritual high moment is, what your championship moment is, but, but picture that on, on, on higher levels. I mean, it's that moment when you get that job or you make that sale and you're like, yes, I don't have to work the rest of my life. I did it, right? Or it's when you get the A on that test or it's when you propose to that girl and she says, yeah, I, let's might, might as well get married. And you're like, praise God. You know, like those high moments, whatever that crescendo is for you, that's what Elijah was walking past. And in that moment, he walks away from that moment, and Ahab goes and runs to his wife. In 1 Kings 19, verse 1, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. See, all those 400 prophets of Baal, they were put to death. And Ahab runs to his wife in this cry-cry moment and says, Look what happened. See, here's, here's the truth about the descent of spiritual discouragement. Some of us think that it's only um, that, that God wants to lead us from high to high and we'll stay in those high moments all of our life. But sometimes discouragement can come in at your highest moment. See, sometimes discouragement can come in right in your most remarkable successes. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, phenomenal preacher in London, said this in his lectures to my students. He says, he says this in a chapter called The, Minister, the Minister's Fits, Fainting Fits. He tells of his own struggles and the problem of discouragement. Here's what he says. First among them, what causes discouragement is the hour of great success. When at last the long-cherished desire is fulfilled. When God has been glorified greatly by our means and great triumphs achieved, then we are all apt to faint. It might be imagined that amid special favors, our soul would soar to heights of ecstasy and rejoice with joy unspeakable. But it's generally the reverse. The Lord seldom exposes his warriors to perils of exaltation over victory. He knows that few of them can endure such a test and therefore dashes their cup with bitterness. Excess of joy or excitement must be paid by subsequent depressions. While the trials last, the strength is equal to the energy needed. But once it's over, natural weakness claims the right to show itself. Before any great achievement, some measure of depression is very usual. So what is Spurgeon saying? He's saying, I don't go from high to high. When I have high moments, I also have deep moments of depression. And Spurgeon, a phenomenal preacher, experienced that in his own life. There was moments of extreme high, but even in those highs, he experienced deep moments of depression. I read an article this week called The Dark Side of Going for Gold. It's talking about Olympians chasing their Olympic dreams. And here's what it says. There's an emotional drop in its most acute form. It might be called the post-Olympic depression. Or to borrow a phrase from the sports psychologist Scott Goldman, it's an under-recovery. He says, think about the roller coaster ride prior to the Olympics. Just how fast and hectic and mad the dash is, Goldman says. It's like nine, going 99 miles an hour. And then it comes to an abrupt stop. It's over. And then not are you depleted physiologically, but you're depleted psychologically. Carolyn Sibbs, a sports psychologist and former competitive skater, says that she spent 14 years training to make the national figure skating team. And she said, some athletes go through a period of time where they feel like an imposter. They recognize that with a blink of an eye, the results could have turned out differently. And they, they feel, um, feel lost in their achievement. See, sometimes it's in those moments of, of complete high that discouragement can sneak up on you. It can come into your heart and it doesn't matter the heights that you've achieved, that moment can send you into a depression. And that's what happens in the life of Elijah. I mean, he should have been bold at this moment. 
This amazing stand, this moment when he saw God answer by fire, this significant moment in his life, but it's going to send him into a tailspin. It was in his high that suddenly he begins taking further steps towards depression. So not only does it come in in a moment of high, secondly, we see this, that it became because of his own self-defined failure. One of the reasons that we struggle with low points in life is because we define the situation, no matter how great or how poor, as a failure in our own eyes. Look at 1 Kings 19.2. It says, Then Jezebel sent messengers to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more so, if I do not make your life as the life of one of these tomorrow. What she says is this, Elijah, your days are numbered. Elijah, I'm going to kill you just like you destroyed and killed them. I'm coming in and I'm taking your life down. Now, I'm not sure what Elijah hoped to happen after this tremendous high, but he didn't expect this. I mean, he had this moment when when he had this standoff and it was clear, okay, God is God, not these other gods. God is God alone. And what did he expect to happen? What what do you think he thought would happen? Maybe widespread spiritual renewal. Maybe everyone, maybe Jezebel would like come to faith and there'd be that moment like, okay, I know I'm a sinner and I pray to Jesus. Like maybe it was that moment. Have you been in that moment? When you come off a great high, maybe God's been doing something really great in your life and maybe you even get the courage to go share your faith with someone and your hope when you finally got that moment, okay, I'm gonna share my faith with this person and they're going to respond and you present the gospel and you were a rock star. I mean, you nailed it. You're like, hey, we're all sinners, separate from God. But God sent his son to die in our place for our sins. He forgave even me. He will forgive even you. And you get to that moment when you share that gospel and that person goes, huh, cute. Can we talk about something else? Or maybe there's that other moment in life you're like, I believe that God is real and he is true, but other people around you don't don't see it the same way. They don't buy in to your faith. See, that's, that's where Elijah is. And he defines this moment when Jezebel rejects him as a moment of utter failure. One commentator writes it this way. It's often been asked how a man could experience such divine provision, perform such great miracles, single-handedly withstanding 400 pagan prophets and the, king, and the king himself, and yet cower before this woman's threats. It must be remembered, of course, that Jezebel was anything but a mere woman. She was of royal blood, and she was ruthless in pursuing her goals. His God-given success had fostered an inordinate amount of pride, and it made him to take his own importance too seriously. See, that's, that's his issue. He's like, I thought this was gonna go this way. I defined success to look like this, and when it didn't look how I thought it should look, he went into a spiritual depression, a spiritual spiral. Albert Bandera, I'm a psychologist, writes this. Success and failure are largely self-defined in terms of personal standards. The higher the self-standard, the more likely we will uh, give attainments will be viewed as failures, regardless of what others might think. Here's, Here's Elijah's issue. He said, what success is going to look like is this. And when when reality didn't match what I wanted. I'm defining it as a failure. I'll tell you this. One of my struggles in life is when I try to define what success looks like for God. You ever been there? Like, I think success will look like this. Like, when I preach a sermon, and it's good, I mean, oh, it's good. Like, they're going to laugh at my jokes. They're going to come back changed. Like, everyone's going to be like, surely the Lord was in the place in that moment, right? Like, I'll define success how it looks, Or when I share my faith with someone, with a friend. Like I'm defining what success looks like in that moment. I I believe that they're gonna come to faith, they're gonna repent of their sins, they're gonna come to Jesus and it's all gonna look like this. Or, Or maybe it's you and how you raise your kids. You're like, okay, if I raise my kid this way, I teach them these things, they do these things, they're gonna come out of that conveyor belt like a perfect child. 
And you have your own little version, your picture of success. And when your picture of success isn't matched with reality, that's a tough place to be. See, he's defining success by his immediate results, not a faith-filled process. He's defining success with immediate results, not a faith-filled process. And when he doesn't get the results he wants, it sits in a spiral in verse three. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The third thing that we see from Elijah is that he is exhausted, and he ran. I'm bringing up a map to kind of show you where he ran from. Uh, The battle that took place was in Mount Carmel, which is all the way there north to the left. And when this news of Jezebel's response came, he ran all the way down the country to the south to Beersheba. He went the exact opposite direction for where God had called him to be, and he ran to the furthest place south he could in the nation of Israel. He is exhausted. He is spent. He's emotionally exhausted. He's physically exhausted. He's spiritually exhausted. And this moment in exhaustion, you know what we do when we're exhausted? We run. When we're emotionally spent, when we're physically spent, what do you do? You're just like, you know what? I don't want him to have anything to do with this. I'm just going to run. And so he runs, and then, then, then he moves to isolation, a self-imposed isolation. Verse 3, he ran, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. He ran as far away as he could, and he had a servant with him. And he came to Beersheba, and he says, hey, you stay there, and then he went even further to this self-imposed isolation. What do we do? What, what are the steps towards a spiritual dark place? It's when we define success a certain way, and it doesn't happen. It's when we begin running, and we're emotionally exhausted and spent, and then we go and isolate ourselves. And that, that fear and that disappointment and that frustration, it sent him on this downward spiral. John Piper has a, a great statement on, on this process, and I, I think it's really, really helpful. It says this, discouragement is a species of fear. It's a type of fear. It's a loss of courage. We don't always recognize discouragement as fear because it can feel like hopelessness and a side of cynicism. We might even call it depression because we have an accumulation of fears that are intermingled with uh, and seem somewhat undefined. And of course, if we're discouraged, we feel depressed. We feel like giving up. And when we feel like giving up, we are vulnerable to a whole range of temptations. When we give in to those temptations, our sin just conforms our discouragement, and we easily slip into a cycle which which fear drives into, our, into us a hiding, hiding open sin of selfishness and self-indulgence and, and caving and increase of helplessness and self-pity. We sit weighed down by fear and condemnation, feeling stuck. There's been moments in my life when I have walked through this process where I feel like I should have gotten these particular results when those results do not happen, I get frustrated. I get frustrated with myself. I get frustrated with the situation, and I run, and I always run to the same place. I never run to community. I always run to isolation. And in that moment of isolation, it, it, it's almost like, like marinating a steak. Marinating a steak is a beautiful thing, right? Like you, you get all of the, the juices and the flavors, and you put it onto that steak, and you want to grill it, and it's going to be absolutely amazing, Right? But it's not that way when you're um, wallowing in self-pity. Because every situation, every frustration, you just marinate on that stake of like, 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 I'm all alone. I made myself alone. I know, but I'm all alone, right? <laughs> like, like, like nothing's working out. Well, I mean, you're, you're by yourself and you've isolated and you're exhausted. I know, but nothing's working out, right? And then like you see like two birds flying two by two. You're like, see, everyone's got a friend but me. And you're just like, that one other thing 
And, and you just wallow in that self-pity and everything is more reason for you to feel worse and worse and worse. And it gets to the point where Elijah's at a point where he wants to give up. First Kings 19 says this, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, is it enough now, Lord? Take my life away. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, still fearful, he might have just discovered he traveled a day's journey, about 15 miles into the Negev Desert, and he sat there under a broom tree. It's about a 12-foot-tall tree. He'd forgotten everything that he learned about God's provision. He'd forgotten everything he learned about God's protection. Exhausted and discouraged, he laid down and fell asleep. See, every person that's used mightily by God encounters moments of discouragement. St. Teresa de Avila, in, her, uh, in a book called The Life of Teresa de Avila, describes like her own little journey within this, and I think it's uh, very telling. Teresa describes it this way. She says, we, we, had to, we had a run of many dangers. At no part were the roads safe from from." From deep, um, from rivers that were flowing and high water places along the footpath, and there was two abysses on each side. So they're they're going on this little journey. There's rivers flowing. It's a dangerous time, and it seemed foolhardy to advance, especially in a carriage. This is back in the 1500s. So they're going by carriage. It's a very dangerous time. For if one would stay even a little off the road, um, they, they would have perished. They go off one side or the other. But she was silent. And the share of many of her adventures, and she kind of continued to engage and engage and engage. And at last, like, the, the carriage got stuck, and so she decided to go on by foot to preach the gospel to these villages. And she led the way by foot. The current was so strong that she lost her footing, and at one point was being carried away. And she says, oh my God, she exclaimed, um, help, help, will, that, will you help me, or will you scatter these obstacles in front of me? And she falls she falls down and gets all wet and soaked. And she hears this voice, Do not complain, daughter, the divine master answered. For this is how I treat all my friends. Then she responds, Ah, Lord, if this is how you treat all your friends, it's no wonder that you have so few. <laughs> and that's true in life. We could be like, God... Why are you piling up all of these issues on me? Why does it feel like the waves are always crashing? Why does it feel like I'm face planting in these life, life's moments? And we can begin to start blaming God. And we can begin to start getting more and more frustrated with God because what we have defined as success, what we have defined as the path we want to go is not the path God has led us on. I remember several years ago when I was in high school, uh, we went on a trip to Enchanted Rock. And Enchanted Rock, there's these caves that you can go through. And, 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 and they get so dark down there, you can't see anyone. So we were there with this little high school trip. We're all like standing in a line, walking through these caves. And, and the only people with lights are the guides. The rest of us are all walking in darkness. And as we get to one point, uh, we're standing there and, and all of a sudden, like, one person had, like, found a flashlight, and they, start, they shine it up into the ceiling, and it's covered in daddy long legs, right? Like, my wife's greatest fear. And, and uh, at the time, uh, she looks up, and she goes, ah! And I look up, and I'm like, that's amazing. And, and we're like, what are we doing here in this darkness? And then up ahead, the guide goes, hey, 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 chill out, children. Just follow me. And the rest of us all just like put hands on each other's shoulders and we're like, okay, one step after another, one step after another, and walked away out. What's needed in the midst of a dark and scary place? You need a guide. You need a guide that says, hey, follow me. I will lead you out. And that's exactly what God provides in this moment. He provides him a path out of that dark cave, a path of renewal. And let me just tell you, if you are struggling in your own life, the path that Elijah is led on is the same path we need to be led on. 
And the first thing that he does for Elijah is something that I would encourage all of you to do this afternoon. It is the most godly thing you can do probably today after this morning. And it's this, 1 Kings 19 verse 5. It says, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, arise, go and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on some hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and laid down. One of the reasons it's difficult to overcome the funk of spiritual depression is because you haven't taken a nap. When I'm often short or frustrated with my kids or with my wife, I can always trace it to one, one or two simple things. I need to eat a snack, and I need to take a nap because then I'm in a healthier state of mind to engage with the crazies, right? Like, I need simply to take a nap. And I think it's so great that God says, let the boy sleep. Let him sleep. Take a nap. And, and I, let me just tell you, when you're fighting with your spouse, one of the things you may, might ought to do is not stay up until 3 a.m. hashing out the, the issues that you are facing as a couple. You might just say, you know what, babe? I know it says don't let the sun go down on my anger, but the sun going down is not going to help my anger at all in this moment. Let's wait. Let's sleep. Let's get a snack and a strong cup of coffee and re-engage in the morning. Sometimes when you're disciplining your kids, one of the best things you can do is to say, you know what? Jimmy needs to take a nap. Daddy needs to take a nap. And we'll try again tomorrow. It's actually a beautiful, healthy thing. Go get some food. Go take a nap. Psalm 103 says this. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. See, God knows your frame. In Genesis, it says that God formed man out of the dust of the earth. You're just dust particles. You are not as strong as you think you are. I am not as strong as I think I am. I need rest. Charles Spurgeon says this. Rest time is not a waste of time. It's an economy to gather fresh strength. It is wisdom to take occasional furloughs. In the long run, we shall do more sometimes by doing less. Do you actually take serious time to rest? Your physical body has spiritual effects. Do you take a time to take a rest? Then secondly, we see God move in with patient conversation. Verse 9. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am alone. I am left alone. And they seek to take my life away. Okay, Elijah, you just asked for me to kill you, and now you're upset they're going to take your life away. Okay, 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 okay. Oftentimes in our conversations, we're not thinking rationally. He just begged God to kill him, and now he's upset because people might kill him. Like, what are you thinking, Elijah? But that's where we are when we're in a funk. We're not thinking rationally. But look at what God does. He asks him a question. What are you doing here? And it's not because God's confused. It's not. It's not because God's like, where did you go? Are you in a cave? He knew exactly where Elijah was. But Elijah didn't know where he was. You see, oftentimes in life, what we need are gentle proddings. I say, hey, do you know where you are right now? Do you know all the pieces that brought you here? He has this patient conversation, and he, he unloads on him. Now, let me just say, say this for a moment. It, if you feel like God can't take um, your frustrations, you're wrong. The men and women that loved God most deeply were also people that at times they unloaded on God. I do this personally. This is some of my spiritual exercises. I journal, and you cannot read my journals ever because there are lots of Kevin's complainings. This is what should have happened. This is what happened. I can't believe you abandoned me. And I just, I, I write out my complaints. I wish I could say that I'm a perfect person. I'm just like, no, I trust you, Lord, with all things. But then I hate you because you did that. You know, like, not that. But I'm just like, I, I, I pour out my frustrations. 
One of the verses that has helped me so many times in life is in 1 Peter. It says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties, all your frustrations, all your concerns on the Lord because he cares for you and he comes to you. He does. And then he moves in and says, okay, I'm going to come to you and you're going to see my face. And in 1 Kings 9, 19, verse 11, he says, now go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Commentators debate, what what is that about? What's happening? And I I don't know exactly But I think the truth is this, that God comes to us in the way that we need it, in the way that we can hear. And it's up to us to just be sensitive. Are we listening to God? Are we listening to his voice? And so he comes in these, these different things that are coming his way, and it's like, it's, no, it's not the noise, it's not the loud sh- thing. And it's this gentle whisper, and he comes out. Verse 13, and when he heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, second time he asked this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Whenever there's something repeated in the scripture, that's what you need to focus in on. He asked him a second time, what, what are you doing here? You're still here. You're still circling around the same issue. And he repeats the same issue again. I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I am alone left, and they're seeking to take my life. Here's, here's what's fascinating. God asks him this tender question again, and Elijah explodes with the same thing. See, sometimes we have the same answer to the same question, but it's not the right answer to the question. We may have the same answer to the same question, but it's not the right answer anymore. And so God's not going to let him sit there. He's going to ask him the question to self-diagnose. And sometimes people ask you questions and you self-diagnose, but your self-diagnosis isn't correct. The details are correct, but that's not the place God wants you to stay. That's not the place he wants you to stay. One of the most scriptural things you can do is not to let your emotions determine where you stay. One of the most biblical things you can do is not to let your emotions determine who you are and what you're going to be, but actually to talk to yourself, to speak to yourself the truth. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great book called uh, Spiritual Depression and Its Sources, and he writes this in that book. I think it's so helpful. The main trouble with the whole matter of spiritual depression, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, is in a sense this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. I'm not just speaking paradoxically, far from it. Have you ever realized that the most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in that moment, you wake up in the morning, you've not, you've not originated them, but you start, they start talking to you. They bring you back to the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking. Now look at Psalm 42. He said, in Psalm 42, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Instead of letting his soul determine where he's at, he begins talking to his soul. Why are you cast down? Why are you staying here? Hope in God. I will let praise him. He goes on to say the main art in the spiritual matter is knowing how to handle yourself, how to take yourself in the hand to address yourself, saying, this is what I will do. I will not stay cast down. I will hope in God. I will step, praise him. So one of the most biblical things you can do, one of the most scriptural things you can do, is not simply let the same problems be your reality forever, but instead take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought you have isn't from God, and every thought you have isn't what God would want you to think. So it's to take those and take those and put scripture to them. And so God says to him, okay, okay, okay. You said the same thing for three times, and some of you 
have been saying the same thing for decades and you've never been able to move forward. You've gone to all sorts of things to help and you hash out the same things over and over and over again, but you've never been able to move forward. And what God's saying is, hey, there, there may be lots of things that you need to help move out of your spiritual doldrums, your low points, but your history doesn't have to be your future. Where you've been doesn't have to be where you stay. And so to Elijah in this moment, he asks him again, and again, he asks him tenderly, and he says, okay, we're done. We're gonna move forward. In verse 15, it says, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king of Syria, Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king of Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, you shall appoint as prophet in your place. He says, Elijah, you're not done. Sitting in this cave, mulling over the same issues over and over and over again, won't move us forward. I have a future and a hope for you. I have forward direction for you to move into, so don't just sit here in this cave. Let's start moving. And let me just tell you, to get out of spiritual funk, to get out of spiritual depression, Sometimes it just means we've got to start moving. He's got more stuff for us to do. So if you're a parent, you've got kids to love. If you're a spouse, you've got a spouse to care for. If you're a child, you've got parents to affirm and care for. If you're part of a church, you've got people to serve here. There's an ability to keep on moving, and sometimes it's that movement that will help get us out of that same cycle to get out of ourselves. And then he gives them this reality check in verse 18. He says, I have left 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees who haven't bowed to Baal, and every mouth that's not kissed him. He says, Elijah, you think you're all alone. You think you're the only one left. I've got 7,000 that are still my people. You're never alone. You're never the only one left. Start moving forward. And the last thing that God gives him is community. He really gives him a friend. First Kings 19, he departed from there. Verse 19, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke behind him. He puts his cloak on him. He gives him a friend. One of the greatest gifts that God can give you is his presence and his people. This coming up, the month of August, we're going to be promoting a tremendous connection opportunity for you. And it's with our community groups. It's our community groups that are going to walk alongside you. Our community groups for you to grow in relationship. Our community groups have men and women there that love you too much to leave you as you are. And one of the greatest things you can do for yourself if you don't have Christian friends that are going to speak the truth and love to you is to jump in with us. And we have committed to try our best to be your friend. We're not gonna be perfect friends. We will frustrate you, because we're human. We will disappoint you. We will not text you when we should. We will not say all the right things every single time, but here's what we will do. We will be there for you. We will care for you. We will say, I'm sorry. We will text you on your birthday or the day after if we figure that out but we want to come alongside you. And one of the greatest gifts that God gives Elijah is Elisha, this man to walk beside him. C.S. Lewis says, we are born helpless. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, intellectually. We need them if we are to know anything, even ourselves. And you need people. People that love you too much to leave you as you are. I know for me, uh, there have been tremendous low points in my life. And me alone in the Bible with my own little complaints isn't enough. What I need are people to speak into my life and come alongside me. This past year, we've, we've gone through many struggles as a church and struggles personally. One of the greatest gifts I had with some friends of mine, some pastors, but some friends of mine, 
that immediately when things were getting a little bit rough, they texted me, hey, how can we pray for you? How can I encourage you? And there were some moments in my, my, during, the, during the week, I was like, hey, can I have a phone call coming up or whatever? And, and some times where I drove up and they drove over and we, we connected and got lunch together and spent time together and encouraged one another. Let me just tell you what. One of the greatest gifts you can have are relationships with God's people. Because God's people are going to speak the truth and love to you in a way that only they can. So do you have a buddy? This is my stupid line. Frodo had Sam. Lone Ranger had Tonto. Even Batman had Morgan Freeman. And you need a buddy. You need a friend. So conclusion, a couple statements to conclude all these ideas. The first is this, that every man or woman of God can experience deep spiritual discouragement. Every man or woman of God can experience deep spiritual discouragement. Just because you're discouraged doesn't mean God has abandoned you and doesn't mean you're not a good Christian. Every man or woman of God can experience that. Number two, isolation is not the solution. Going solo will not bring freedom. Isolation isn't the solution. Number three, seeking God and seeking community are key steps in the way out of discouragement. Seeking God and seeking community are key steps out of discouragement. I'm going to close our, our time this morning. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward, please. Um, prayer team, come, go and come forward. And, and we want to pray alongside you. Every service, every Sunday, we end uh, with prayer. And there's a reason for that. It's because we believe in a God who answers prayers. We believe in a God who, who through the community of believers, can encourage one another and stand beside one another. And these men and women here um, want to stand alongside you. And so some of you, as I've been talking, there's like a, a deep discouragement or deep frustration that you have that you want help with. Look, some discouragements you were never meant to battle alone. You're meant to battle with us. These are some folks that want to labor and battle alongside you. So if there's a discouragement you're facing, come, let's pray together. Secondly, there's some of you that have never come to faith uh, in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've gone to church, you've gone through the process, but you've never actually put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. All the things we're talking about, the greatest friend you can have is Jesus Christ. He died in our place for our sins, bridging us to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. If you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone, now's the time. We want to pray alongside you to do that. And others of you may be struggling with a, with a, a physical ailment. In James it says, if anyone's, if anyone's struggling, if anyone needs healing, come. We will pray alongside you. So come forward. We want to pray alongside you. We want to encourage you. We want to help you walk in your relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Elijah. A man that did tremendous things for your sake. But a man that became afflicted like all of us do from time to time. With the low points in life. So Lord, I pray that as we, um, as we respond with, in song and we respond in prayer. Um, that your spirit of comfort would come. That you would speak tenderly to us like you spoke tenderly to Elijah. Lord, if we need to ask the question asked of us, what are you doing here? We'd be able to answer how you want us to answer. Lord, I, I need you. Lord, I'm discouraged by so many things. Lord, I, I want to be drawn closer to you. And Lord, I pray that you would spend, send your spirit to encourage us, that you would send your spirit to bring us new life. And Lord, that you would send us a friend, community, to walk alongside of us that we might be um, fully made new by the work of your spirit in the community of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.